Welcome to Meltemi, the Pituleta Bagica podcast. Meltemi is a type of cold breeze in a summer's day, an unexpected yet very pleasant experience. Much like the wind, we want to explore the different directions our conversations will go. This podcast aims to be a breath of fresh air in a hot summer's day. We will be discussing all cultural forms from literature to poetry to philosophy to art in new and different ways. Further, like the magazine's motto, Art for Art's Sake, we are intent on showing you a new face to podcast. Cultural Obsessions is the first series we have launched, where we will be speaking to esteemed guests about the cultural figure, be it an artist, an author, a filmmaker, that means most to them. So without further ado, we welcome you to this series of conversations. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to the Beltemi podcast in the Cultural Obsessions series. I'm Eleonora, and today we're welcoming Michaela Brimsley, an editor at the Picholeta Barca literary magazine which you know we're all part of she has her own her own column called wanderings where she focuses on interviews and the process of interviewing people so it's a very interesting read every month she interviews someone different and it's all about the process of interviewing people and today she's coming to speak here about one of her many cultural obsessions Elena Ferrante so without further ado welcome thank you so much I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, yeah, so for context, this is also one of my cultural sessions. So it's kind of going to be a lot of slightly different episode in that regard, because I know a lot more about this author than I have about other authors. And so today we will be focusing on primarily Elena Ferrante's first book, The Days of Abandonment, and also touching upon her final book, most recent book, The Lying Life of Adults. So without further ado, I'm going to let Michaela introduce Elena, Elena Ferrante, and, and tell us a bit more about her. Thanks so much. Yeah. What makes this author really interesting is that we don't actually know who she is. So yeah. there's not that much I can say about her. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> it's a kind of a silly question, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're like, and we're done. Turning yeah. page. No, what makes her really interesting, though, is that she, the way she functions as a kind of invisible author is very particular. She's not, the way she interacts with her own pseudonym sort of behind the curtain is really interesting. And I'm excited to get into it later. But she, um, the way she's at least marketed herself in the few interviews she's given over email because she doesn't talk with any journalists, she just communicates through writing, is that she is probably right now in her 60s or 70s. She grew up in Naples, which is where most of her novels are set. Mm -hmm. um, and she has alluded to the fact that she's studied the classics, which if you've read her books, you can kind of sense that yeah. in the texts and also has, has done some translation work which you can also somewhat sense in the text. But other than that, we don't really know too many biographical details about her. She's been suspected of, there have been a few people who've been named as potential, like- Elena's. Yeah. yeah, potential yeah. Elena's. But I honestly am of the camp where I don't really care who it is. I'm more interested in this kind of persona she's designed. Yeah. or he or they who knows you know but the persona of Elena Ferrante and how it's functioned in the contemporary literary marketplace I just think it's a really interesting device yeah yeah and if the name rings a bell they've written or she's written my brilliant friend yes. that 
I think it's a quadrilogy or a tetralogy. Tetralogy? I don't actually know the right term for it. Yeah, so so they've written four books. I'm going to say she because the I think yeah. the, boy, the literary voice is very feminine. So yeah, she, even, even though this is kind of like debated point. But Definitely. if you haven't read it, it's about this these two girls who were born in Naples in the 1950s, right after the Second World War. And you see their mm-hmm. friendship, the very complicated friendship unfold throughout their lives. And yeah. it's a very Italian voice, but for some reason, it's a pattern appeal to um, international the international literary circle. And that's quite fascinating yeah. um, as well, because you wouldn't, it's got such a Mediterranean voice that so you wouldn't really associate it with people wanting to read it outside of that. Yeah, so this is also part of why I'm so intrigued by Michaela's interest in her as well, because as an Italian reader, it's it's easy to understand why you would like it, but I can I can completely see how it would be really hit or miss um, mm. in translation. So yeah, I mean, can you actually talk about that a little bit? Because you've brought it up before, but what do you think makes it such a like Italian or you just said Mediterranean too, like a Mediterranean voice? Is there like a quality? How would you describe that? I think it's the type of dynamics that exist mm. within her characters, the type of preconceived knowledge that you would have to have about Italian culture and Italian life Mm -hmm. and Mm. the relationships and how they work and the irony that comes into play with that is Mm. not something that I think that many cultures outside of the Mediterranean kind of southern Mm. Mediterranean side of life that you would really associate with because things work slightly differently in other countries especially like say in Britain I know yeah. that lots of my friends who've read it have just said, mm, I don't really understand why you love this, but fine. Um, <laughs> which I think is completely fair enough because I don't think mm. you can really translate that. And also there's a lot of dialectical voices that come yeah. play, which I don't think translate particularly well either. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting that you bring up dialect too, because I feel like that's been, at least in what I've read about this author, that's been pointed out too, that what this author does is a lot of times the function of dialect is to represent this kind of like underbelly instinctive voice from their hometown. A lot of the characters are women who have been educated and left Naples and then some crisis occurs and they start to kind of reckon with the voice of their home that they've tried to erase or leave behind or somehow move past. And it's interesting reading it because very rarely in the text, at least in the English translations, do you actually read dialogue that warps into some kind of colloquialism. Like the writing always says, this person said X, Y, Z in dialect, you know? So it becomes this kind of like hidden, like sensory experience for me anyway, when I read it, because I understand that there are things that are, unspoken but Mm. felt you know what I mean no and I think that's interesting because obviously I've read there's this other very famous Italian author called um, Andrea Camilleri and Mm. he's written like he's he's a Sicilian author who's now dead uh, but he started writing in his 70s or 80s and he wrote like 25 or maybe like slightly earlier like in his 60s but he Mm. wrote the last two um, decades of his life he wrote 20 books And, oh my god! Um, and he wrote That's in this, so impressive. Yeah, yeah. And he wrote in this fake Sicilian that was, mm. in the sense, it was fake because it wasn't 
the real Sicilian, but he wrote it in a way that Italian readers could get a sensation of what was going on while like keeping mm. kind of getting englobed in, into a new language um, whilst understanding it. So that's yeah. quite interesting. And, and that's been translated into English. But some of the translation choices, because it was translated in Britain, they like mm. chose like northern accents to like right. represent that, which just sounds I understand the like the choice, but obviously that won't work because it's all yeah, 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 yeah. so so I think it's quite good that maybe with here, like here they just said, okay, fine, we're just gonna put it as like this is in dialect. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sit, sit with it like that. Because <laughs> uh-huh. I think also it presumes less of a social context or literary mm. context or cultural context yeah. and making it more accessible maybe. Yeah, it's like English becomes less a kind of cultural imposition and mm. more a vessel through which like you can try to experience the fragments of what it originally was, you know? So translation becomes this like, yeah, rather than like an encapsulation, it becomes like like a talisman, you know, that you know you're not getting the full story about, which is what I love actually about reading works in translation, you know this about me, but I personally prefer reading books in English that have been translated into English from other languages, because I really love the experience of reading something that I know I'm not getting the full story of. And for me, like I, I guess, cause this is a podcast and not everyone knows who I am. I grew up in Japan and it, my first language was Japanese and um, I was educated in it first and spoken at first. And but I live right now much more in English, but the experience of English for me has always felt like language of translation and Japanese much more like a language of instinct somehow. And so I think when I read works of translation, I really enjoy the kind of doubleness of it, you know, that I have this awareness that language can be something that's really sensory and evocative and personal and that the translated language, it's just a different entity, you know? So I just really enjoy, I think, reading um, these books by Elena Fronte because in particular, because of the way that dialect functions and how it helps to point to these moments of emotional rupture that almost don't have their own language, you know? Like when these characters really explode, like it's, it's hard to really describe that. And I think in our, in my own life, for me anyway, times when I've felt the most in crisis have been ones that I don't quite know how to describe to people, you know? So I think the experience of reading Elena Fronte in translation is, I, I assume a very different experience than reading it in Italian. I can imagine that it's just much more visceral, much more tapped into a kind of sensory nerve you know as opposed to reading it from English which feels like like I feel like I'm reading something that's bleeding but I'm just trying to stay alive you know as it bleeds over me it's just a different experience I think I feel like there's something quite Bartesian about what you just said like it's kind Mm. of like you're interpreting signs right because the the sensation I have of you reading this in English and the kind of disconnect that you're kind of describing is like you yeah. seeing these signs and trying to interpret them so in a way yeah. it kind of works with like who you are as a person so if you're like always trying to <laughs> understand and like trying to like examine mm. and you're very introspective so I feel like this this makes sense what you like it um, yeah so I guess my next question is 
why Elena? I mean, obviously, in this case, yeah. like, we, we chose Elena kind of together mm. when we realized that we liked similar books. But yeah, what about Ellen? What is it about um, Ferrante that you really wanted to speak about here? Yeah, I think there are a couple different reasons. I think anytime I just discover, I hate that word, anytime I learn about, because <laughs> um, I didn't discover them, anytime I learn about a writer who is very pointed in the fact that they're thinking in some ways about gender, I'm automatically interested. And also when the work is um, trying to like, get rid of the idea that like, quote unquote, male writers are our neutral space, you know? Like, I think we've been done a big disservice by being taught that works written by men serve as this kind of nucleus or anchor of literary history. For me, I think what's really interesting about literary history are those more fragmented, the voices from the sidelines. I mean, thinking about how philosophy was developed, thinking about how um, diary writing was developed into this like form of creative expression. I mean, all these interesting literary forms have come from spaces on the sidelines and often written by people who were either women or disenfranchised or somewhat on the sidelines. And I really, when I first, and The Days of Abandonment also was the first book of hers that I read. And when I first read it, I kind of had this really visceral experience where the authorial voice really struck me as being very kind of rooted and determined and vulnerable and rigorous, which I really appreciated and found really liberating to read. Also for me, I find that the first book I read of a certain author really leaves a big impression on me. I mean, you know, I really like Natalia Ginsburg. And the first book of hers I read was The Dry Heart, at least that's the title in English, which I actually think is sort of similar to The Days of Abandonment in a way. And there's something about the first book I read of an author with a particular authorial voice that really clicks in my mind because it's almost less about the book and what the book does to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And with this book, The Days of Abandonment, I actually was reading it when I was doing a lot of tutoring of kids. So I was spending time with these kids kind of going a little bit crazy. And I started reading this book like during my lunch break (laughs) and then I started spiraling. So I felt like my experience of reading it like paralleled the book. And I think that with the kind of, yeah, like the unraveling of gender and again, sort of what I was saying about translation, I think it ticked a few boxes that just really appealed to me. I don't know. Okay, so perfect. Yeah. That's a really, really like interesting answer. Perfect is such a weird word in this context, but yeah, that's a really, really, really <laughs> interesting answer. And I guess we can just jump in. You kind of answered why you chose the days of abandonment. Yeah. So I would just wanted to ask, like, could you give our listeners a bit of a context, a bit of the plot understanding? Obviously, this the, the, these podcasts always have spoilers, but that's just the nature <laughs> of them. All of Eleanor Ferrante's books are translated, so feel free to dip in and out of all of them. God knows that it's worth your time in our opinion. Definitely. Um, Definitely. So yes, without further ado, just tell me anything and everything that you'd like to tell me about about this book. Here we go. Um, okay, so this book, The Days of Abandonment, is about a woman named Olga, whose husband, Mario, leaves her on the first page of the oh. book. 
And the book kind of charts her own process of coming to terms with the fact that she's basically sacrificed her entire life to be a mother and a supportive kind of intelligent partner to this man who very carelessly makes this decision to leave her without providing too much of an explanation. So the book is really interesting because the narrator from the first page, based on how she's responding to the event, you can tell that she's very, very intelligent. And the book kind of follows a really interesting sequence of events where with her, you get to kind of come to terms with what someone who's very educated, very intelligent, how their thought process might go if something that they took for granted is suddenly taken away from them and what that then reveals about who they really are. So the book has three distinct sections, at least in my mind. The first section is sort of the beginning when the husband leaves her, she tries to process. She also has two young children as well with her husband and also a dog. And all three of those characters become very important as the novel goes on. But the first section kind of deals with her just trying to come to terms with it. She learns that this isn't too much of a spoiler because you kind of find out kind of early, but her husband's been cheating on her. You get a few kind of details maybe about the context. And then the second section, she accidentally locks herself and her children and her dog in her own apartment. Oh, <laughs> and most, I would say like a good chunk of the novel like really takes place in this apartment and she really spirals. And then the last section is, I mean, spoiler, like she's not going to live in the apartment for the rest of her life. She finds a way to get out. So those three sections, sort of the before apartment, the apartment, and then the after apartment. Well, first, before I continue, do you feel like you have anything you want to add? Do you feel like that's a good assessment of it? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a very good assessment to it. Um, It's a very, very psychedelic book, in my opinion. Yeah. So continue, go ahead. Yeah. You're giving a very good impression, understanding of it. I think it's, it's okay. a very good description, yeah. Okay, thank God. <laughs> yeah, because like you're saying, it's very, and I think psychedelic is actually, because as you started saying the word, I was like, oh, she's going to say psychological. No. <laughs> but psychedelic is no. actually much more accurate. It's very kind of It's bananas. Visceral. Yeah, oh it's God. super intense. So aside from those three sections, in terms of location, there are a couple themes that also run through the book, which are really relevant. Olga, like all, or not all, but most of Elena Ferrante's heroines is from Naples, though she lives in Turin. Um, Her family is in Turin during the book, but um, she is in Naples and she sort of, over the course of the book, has this kind of internal conversation with herself about this woman who used to, this older woman who used to live in her housing complex, whose husband left her. And this is, sorry, when Olga was a small child. So she has these kind of flashbacks to this woman who she watched really disintegrate. And that kind of moves through the novel, as well as this kind of theme, which Eleanor's is my favorite part of the book, which is this kind of phrase, the absence of sense, which I think on one level, this book could be thought of as the kind of like essay trying to examine that the meaning of this phrase, the absence of sense, which in the first chapter, Olga mentions how her husband uses it as a kind of excuse because at one point earlier on in their marriage, 
he almost seriously cheated on her and then came back to her. And then, but um, Olga over the course of this novel really kind of undergoes an absence of sense where she like starts to feel empty. Yeah, of sort of the stages of she feels like empty in terms of she doesn't have any kind of ability to rationalize her situation. And then she gets succumbed to this kind of sensory experience where she can't really tell who she is and what her world is and, and all these things. So anyway, so those are kind of the two themes, sort of these flashbacks that come back and then this idea of the absence of sense, which kind of flows through the book. So that's kind of how I would describe the book. I think it's a very, very good description. I came to this book late in my readings mm. of Ferrante. I, I started, as I think most people do, with her quadrilogy. And actually a very funny story. I read the first mm. book and then mm. a year later I read what I thought was a second book, but actually it was a third book. Whoops. <laughs> and um, Were you I, confused? <laughs> Were you no, like, what I was just like, this is an incredible author. She expects you to like <laughs> completely understand everything. And, yeah. you know, just understand from like the few things that she's saying what's happened mm. and then only later that I realized I'd read the third book rather than the second <laughs> so in a way I, I've kind of ruined my reading of it but it was really really interesting yeah. and she's one of those authors who I think really it, you either stick with their style or you don't mm. so mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you either mm-hmm. like it or you don't and I think that if you don't like it that's completely fair enough but it would be yeah. the same reason why you would like it so she creates really a world that you kind of succumb to. And in this yeah. book, it's really violent. I've read yeah. a few of her books. There's always the theme of violence in her books between men and women. Gender is very much at play. Um, yeah. There's always a bit of denunciation. Or like it's these relationships, especially, you know, cheating, being abandoned, hysteria which is present throughout and you know Mm -hmm. even violence between men against men it's always complex it's always explained it's never cut and dry so you always get a sensation of the reality of these kinds of pains which I think you would get from a a mature author rather than a young author Mm. where it might be more raw but this violence against women femininity you know as you said like gender is very much explained but yeah. like in in a very fivefold way um yeah. so so yes yeah, so I came to this book that way and I found it really 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 difficult to read I read it yeah. but I just sat there and I was like this is horrible I can't continue reading this but I'm <laughs> here I am reading this yeah you definitely I definitely had the experience where I felt really claustrophobic reading okay. it like as if I was in the apartment too, especially that section where it just, I started getting anxious. I started getting just like really paranoid, you know? And also speaking of violence and gender, I have to say, I think this book has the best bad sex scene I've ever read. (laughs) Like Elena Ferrante is not particularly known for like or I wouldn't say, maybe correct me if you think I'm wrong, but she's not super into like romance or sex. She doesn't really go into it that much, but what she's, what I found really striking about her writing about sex is she's really good at writing when it goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a scene in, I think in the second book of the My Brilliant Friend series where um, the main character sleeps with the father of the boy she's in love with. And yeah. it really is, like pretty unpleasant and 
intense. I feel like the writing of that though is like really amazing. And in this book, Days of Abandonment, Olga has this like not super rewarding, but nevertheless really interesting sex scene. And I feel like the, um, I don't know, did you feel that way? Like, I felt like it was just really well-written. I read it being like, wow, like this is great. (laughs) Even though it was so like not fun for the characters as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is so well-written and intelligent somehow, you know? Yeah, I think it was very, very vivid. I think all, like, the the main feeling I had during that book was that, like, this is, like, reading your worst nightmare. <laughs> and <laughs> in yeah. whatever form, like, maybe the contents kind of change, but the general yeah. feeling is that, like, mm-hmm. you kind of would expect to turn the page and be like, okay, and then she woke up. Yeah, it was very, very, you want that every time. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like lucid dreaming, vivid dreaming, you know, when you're kind of like in that in-between state between waking yeah. up and but you're in these kind of really ridiculous dreams and you don't know how to get out of them. Yeah, it felt like that. But it yeah. was also fascinating. I'm really like intrigued. Why is this your favorite book? Is it like because it's the first book of hers that you read or like because it's not actually that- a very pleasant book, you know, it's not yeah. one of those things that you'd come back to for comfort. Yeah, you make a great point. It is not. Well, I also don't find Elena Fronte in general a comforting writer. Like, I don't really come to her to feel good. You know? <laughs> this is a very weird yeah. tw- twist to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe someone would, but not my experience. Um, I definitely think the fact that it was my first book, I think also, how do I put this? Yeah, I have two reasons I think. I think the first reason is that I have felt in a few different times in my life that I'm going through an experience that I really struggle to articulate, particularly in English, but just in general. And I remember Nacho saying this in his episode, so an episode callback, but Nacho said that one of the worst feelings in the world is to feel like you don't have the language to express something that you feel really deeply. Mm-hmm. And I have felt a couple times in my life as if I'm going through something that I really don't know how I'm going to claw back out of yeah. because I don't have the language to express what I'm actually going through. And I don't quite understand it. And I think what was so powerful about this book for me was that this writer somehow found a way to name an experience that I haven't gone through. Like I've never been married. I didn't have my husband leave me for, you know, like, so the, the realities or the kind of the details about the main character, I don't necessarily relate to, but I, but I felt like she named something in a particular way that just really clicked for me somehow. Like I just really got it. And I, and I think, and the second reason why I think I really love this book is connected to that as well in terms of the naming, which is that it feels like a very Gothic book mm. in terms of the trope of kind of have in Gothic novels, you have like this heroine who begins as like very clearly like quote unquote flawless or perfect or innocent. And then over the course of the novel through a series of encounters, they encounter a kind of double of themselves in a kind of monstrous or villainous character. And it's very racialized too. I mean, the history of Gothic novels is very much like written by 
the white women in England a couple hundred years ago who were like reckoning with the fact that they were property <laughs> and using this genre as a way to try to see themselves as something different than property. But in the act of doing that, it took on this really racialized discourse, I think, where a lot of times the kind of villainous double is a servant or a woman, like often from the Caribbean, honestly, or like, you know, like darker skinned women. And though this book, Days of Abandonment, isn't always following the kind of tropes of a Gothic novel, I, because I've read so many Gothic novels and I really kind of know the genre well, I think because there were elements of it that I recognized, you know, a kind of Gothic element, it allowed me to tap into the language more quickly, I think. And I just love any book that's, that talks about processes where people feel really fragmented. I think where a character is forced to look at themselves from a new perspective, where a character kind of like begins the book not knowing how to see themselves and over the course of the book starts to learn a new way how to see themselves. So I think those are probably kind of long answers and <laughs> maybe long with it. But um, yeah, the fact that it, it felt really gothic to me, which I really liked. And then also that the writers seem to be able to name a kind of experience that I haven't, that before reading this book, I hadn't read in the way they named it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And there's mm. also something quite womanly about it. So yeah, I, totally. I, I think we'll discuss this like slightly later, but like the mm. idea of author, like the voice, narrative yeah. voice being female yeah. and describing these things in a female voice yeah. is just very pertinent to reading Elena Ferranca, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's so satisfying. Like, mm. it's just because she's so, the writer is so clearly both, like, you know how oftentimes, like, women are criticized? I mean, this is super cliche, but, like, when women try to advocate for anything, people are like, oh, you're being so emotional, you know? Mm. And I think what's so, and and it's often just because, they're willing to express their rage, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, but in this book, like I, or with Elena Fronte rather, like she is both incredibly intelligent and perceptive and emotionally driven and it's fully inhabited, you know, it's not like a lot of, to me, very boring books, like follow the structure where it's very kind of perceptive and thoughtful and intelligent and someone has a crisis and then suddenly there's a lot of emotion and then we go back to being narrative and it's just so like at least not in my experience of like that doesn't mirror my experience of how it lived my life so I really liked that it felt really fully lived and also something else in terms of being very womanly I remember reading a review of the first book of the tetralogy the quadrilogy whatever the term is by James Wood who's an American I think oh maybe he's English actually, but he writes for the New Yorker. Maybe he's American. Yeah, I don't know. And he called and he really liked the books. And I think this review helps get people to read the book, but the first book, my brilliant friend, but he called Elena Fronte an angry Jane Austen, which I found so annoying. <laughs> angry Jane like, Austen. How that's dare quite, you? <laughs> that's quite cool though, because like Yeah. Well, what's your you response? Really compare. You really wouldn't compare, in my opinion, um, mm. a an author in the twenty first century as you know one of the great classics. 
that's quite yes. like I mean yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. angry is not per- perfect yeah, but it, yeah, it's, yeah it's a really really flattering comparison yeah. to be compared to Jane Austen who wrote these really really important literary that's books true. that shaped English literature and then probably a lot of other literatures because obviously everything's influenced by everyone blah 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 um <laughs> but yeah I know yeah no definitely also what's interesting and I know I think because I've read a bunch of Elena Fronte's email interviews I know she really likes Sense and Sensibility the mm-hmm. Austin novel about the two sisters who are very right. much like doubles of each other so I can totally see also why she might have really enjoyed that as well this the writer being compared you know to being interested in relationships between women and then the relationship between themselves and the world. But I do think that, I don't know why, but reading the fact that she was angry hit me the wrong way. And I'm honestly not sure. Now that I brought this up, why was I so angry? I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe because to me, it's not just rage. Like I think these books, why people connect with them is because there's this very delicate weaving of anger and passion and disillusionment in this book, not as much as like her book, The Lost Daughter, but Fronte's really good at writing about women who aren't in love with being mothers, you know, like things that are experiences that are really nuanced and complicated. And so maybe when I reacted negatively to the angry Jane Austen comment, it was because I felt like that was reductive somehow. But I do think that she really is interested in social classes too, between people. I mean, I don't know. No, I completely agree with you. I think she's, I think that's fair enough that you would react to it. Because I think often women are characterized by men in very dichotomous or simplified yeah. ways. Totally. Um, and totally. so sometimes reviews are very much like pointed, like angry, sad, yeah. feminine, that's joyous. True. I think maybe it's like just the simplify, simplification of an author. Mm is mm-hmm. what you're reacting to but it's quite yeah. it's quite an impressive huh. review in a way like it, it sold books for sure. <laughs> it did sell books yeah, yeah. so totally. before we kind of switch over mm. to like the second part of the conversation I was yes. just wondering if you had any passages that you'd want to read that you yes. kind of stuck out to you well since we were talking about doubling I thought I would maybe bring in a passage that happens at least in the English translation on page 123 okay um which is a section when she's locked in her apartment and her daughter comes in wearing all of her makeup like the daughter who's in elementary school and is really young is really kind of inquisitive and playful and is bored because of course she's been locked in this apartment and Olga's kind of losing her mind because she's trying to get out and she's really frustrated and she also is reckoning with the fact that she's really I don't know like overwhelmed by the kind of cacophony of criticism and self-loathing and confusion and all these things that she's going through. So I guess before I read this, um, something to keep in mind, I mean, we've been talking about doubling and sort of seeing yourself differently and the kind of psychedelic claustrophobic experience of this book. So maybe keep that in mind. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just a warning ahead of time. Okay. The voice reached me from far away. Just a moment. First, take off the makeup for good. Thanks to the side panels of the mirror, I saw the two halves of my face separately, far apart, and I was drawn first by my right profile, then by the left. 
They were both completely unfamiliar to me. Normally, I didn't use the side panels. I recognized myself only in the image reflected by the big mirror. Now I tried to arrange the mirror so that I could see from the side and from the front. There is no technical means of reproduction that, up to now, has managed to surpass the mirror and the dream. Look at me, I said to the glass in a whisper, a breath. The mirror was summing up my situation. If the frontal image reassured me, saying to me that I was Olga and perhaps I would arrive at the end of the day successfully, my two profiles warned me that it was not so. They showed me my neck, the ugly living ears, the lightly arched nose that I had never liked, the chin, the high cheekbones and the taut skin of the cheeks like a white page. I felt that there, over those two half portions, Olga had scant control. She was not very resistant, not very persistent. What did she have to do with those images? The worst side, the better side, geometry of the hidden. If I had lived in the belief that I was the front of Olga, others had always attributed to me the shifting, uncertain welding of the two profiles, an inclusive image that I knew nothing about. To Mario, to Mario above all, I thought I had given Olga, the Olga of the central mirror, and now in reality, I didn't know which face, which body I had given him. He had assembled me on the basis of those two shifting, disjointed ephemeral sides. And I don't know what physiognomy he had attributed to me, <laughs> what montage of me had made him fall in love, what, on the other hand, had turned out to be repugnant to him, making him fall out of love. For Mario, I, I shuddered, had never been Olga. The meanings, the meaning of her life, I suddenly understood, were only a dazzlement of late adolescence, my illusion of stability. Starting now, if I wanted to make it, I had to trust myself to those two profiles, to their strangeness rather than to their familiarity, and moving on from there very slowly, restore confidence in myself, make myself an adult. So that's the paragraph. And I think that paragraph, I think kind of goes through a lot of the themes of the book. I mean, the fact that she's really, she really, this experience of her husband leaving her, what's also what's interesting about this book, I don't know if you responded this way too, there was very little time where she really mourned. It's not that she was really sad about it, which was also interesting. She was like, she kind of goes through this process where she's just more interested in how he got to a place where he so carelessly left her and how she let herself get to a place where she was so carelessly left. Like, it's really a surprise to her. And I think in this paragraph, you just see how she's really trying to take this opportunity to look at herself differently and use this experience as a way to then become adult, which is, we're gonna talk about the most recent book she wrote, which is about sort of adolescence and adulthood. And I, and this is also interesting that it brings that in, but yeah, I just think this paragraph is really interesting and kind of goes over a lot of things we've been talking about. Yeah, so if anyone's interested about the process of how we make these podcasts, we kind of like, choose some paragraphs we choose some extracts that are interesting and we discuss very briefly depending on who um, I'm interviewing things and themes about the book and they mm -hmm. the interviewee gets to choose exactly what they want to talk about and that's how we've shaped these podcasts but it's mm -hmm. quite interesting that you've managed to like encapsulate everything together because the line of life of adults let's let's get into this so slightly just so you get you get a bit of a context is mm -hmm. her latest book after the mm. quadrilogy, which was obviously a hit. And so as kind of with any big author, it's the first shift into something different. And so the contrast between her first book and her last book is, is like intense. But yeah. also in this book, 
whereas in in the quadrilogy you know you, you see these two girls grow up they become grown-ups they have grown-up problems they then get older they have older problems and you have this mm-hmm. relationship that changes throughout and it's fluid that is rigid all of these kinds of things in this book instead you have the same themes about women about mm-hmm. naples about violence about violence against women but all perceived by an adolescent mm-hmm. and the realities of being an adolescent is that it sucks like <laughs> yeah. there's just nothing there's nothing nice about it it's an uncomfortable yeah. period of your life both yeah. physiologically and then mentally and then you are unfortunately becoming a woman <laughs> which is a reality that like no one reckons with particularly well because it has yeah his like centuries of oppression <laughs> related yeah. to them and when you're a child you kind of get away with not being a girl you get away yeah. you, you, you depending on what kind of family you have you might be mm. considered more of a girl than than other times but mm. especially in this day and age and in, in the city in the societies we've lived in yeah we've kind of been allowed to be girls without having to be girls but when you become a, an adolescent and a woman I feel like there is this very big shift that's kind of a burden yeah. and I think that she's encapsulating that very well do you do you have any other things to say about this too (laughs) (laughs) no I was just listening nodding like yes yes also correct (laughs) yeah yeah no I agree with you I think also what's interesting is what I thought made the lying life of adults well what makes it really complicated which is the word you were using to describe it earlier too is that it's narrated by a character who doesn't really have a point of view about herself in the beginning. And over the course of the book develops her own gaze and the politics of how she kind of, how do I put it? Like constructs her own gaze is really interesting because she almost is becoming an adult as she, is watching her parents act like children during their separation. So it's this just really interesting point in time to use as a kind of development of the gaze. I just think it's it's really interesting. And I um, liked The Lying Life of Adults a lot because I felt like the characters in it weren't like apologizing for themselves. I think some of her earlier books um, I got the sense that some of the characters were tentative, um, were some of the women that these books are concerned, the earlier books are concerned with are women who, um, have become tentative because the world forced them to be that way. And in the line life of adults, the main character doesn't get that opportunity because we meet her before she would go through the process of censoring herself. So it's really interesting. I I also agree with you. I thought it was really interesting. But the sensation of reading it is very different than the series of My Brilliant Friend. I really felt that. Like, I totally agree with you. It didn't feel, I mean, it was the same author, of course, but like, it definitely had a different sensory, I had a different sensory reaction to it. Yeah, I completely agreed. Both books we recommend. Um, I think this leads to my question of, have you read everything by Elena Ferrante? Yes. Whoa. Sorry. Well, 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 actually, I feel I was about to, I mean, I said yes very confidently, but um, actually part of me wants to say I've read none of her 
because mm. I think you can only really read her unless you've read her in Italian. But um, I disagree. I think really? it's a different reading, but it's fine. Okay, okay. Everyone okay. has readings of books, like that's why we like some books and don't like others. I think that's a fair that's true. thing. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be able to read, say, we've read Tolstoy or read whatever. Yeah, but I don't like Tolstoy, so I don't mind. You don't like <laughs> Tolstoy? <laughs> no. You don't like you don't like Anna Karenina? Oh my God! Wait, have we just discovered we don't like this book? Yes, I really did not like reading Anna Karenina. I in fact I read it. When mm-hmm. I, how old were you? Like two years ago. Interesting. I I like read it. I had a really hard time getting through it. That's normal. Um, and I was like, it was like haunting me because it was taking me a few, I was like reading other books as I was reading it because I couldn't get through it. And then I basically took myself to a bar, got myself some beer and fries, which I really enjoy beer and fries, um, and forced myself to finish the book in a night, which I did. Um, and kind of for the last 300 pages, I was just like trapped in this busy bar as people were like, what are you doing? And I was like reading alone, <laughs> eating fries. Um, yeah, no, I really didn't. I, there were a couple things that I think I found frustrating. Well, actually, before I say anything, I think when it was written, if I was alive when it had been published initially, I would have liked it more because I think part of the book is concerned with really trying to process the conversation about class that was happening in Russia at the time. And it almost functions as a kind of sociological text in that way, because so many sections of it are really trying to process what it means to be Russian and all those kinds of things. But I just felt like the main character was Anna Karenina. I was just kind of annoyed by everyone. And I felt as if- but that's normal. These aren't people felt- that you're supposed to like. But then what is the part? That- well, I never understood why people like it because I, also felt well I know a lot of people really like a lot of writers I admire have said they or have said they've liked Anna Karenina because it was a character that had a very kind of feminine voice but I felt as it was like a very masculine version of what a feminine voice could theoretically sound like and I didn't I didn't enjoy it I don't know what is your experience actually convince me to like Anna Karenina <laughs> well I don't think convince <laughs> you to like it I, I read it when I was 16 it was oh, my okay. first very serious book and I read it mm. over a year and the thing oh, wow. that I think about Anna Karenina is that, like, I remember scenes vividly. I think mm. that it's amazing because I can still remember, if I get talking mm. about it, I can still remember scenes as if I'd read it, as if I could see it. Mm. Um, and sometimes, like, that's kind of how my memory works, but, like, mm. that's not, I don't have that with a lot of books. Um, okay. And I think it's written beautifully. Mm-hmm. and I think that I didn't read it because Anna Karenina herself is lovely or like <laughs> her struggle is particularly relatable and quite frankly yeah. she's one of those pathetic characters it's kind of like Emma uh, Bouverie yeah. like yes. you're not supposed to I think you're not supposed to like them however yeah. this whole story of the cousin her cousin who goes oh what's his name um who goes it? Levin yeah Levin who goes to the countryside and Kitty that whole yeah. dynamic yeah. between those two and mm-hmm. everything that was put into that like storyline made it particularly mm. fascinating and I think that yeah. if you read it in context then it's a very revolutionary book obviously totally 
the context is kind of gone but like yeah there is something about that book that mm. once you've gotten yourself through it and if you read it with the open-mindedness that you're not supposed to mm. like relate to it then it's yeah. a magnificent book like the first sentence of the book all yeah, happy families <laughs> are all happy families are similar but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way yeah <laughs> is there anything more poignant to life like 100 you know, what, what are you gonna say to that yes <laughs> I don't think many books have a better sentence or start to yeah. it and anything more poignant and more relevant to the story and yeah no, Definitely. it's amazing but like I understand why people wouldn't want to read that yeah I find it fascinating I, yeah yeah I mean I feel like structurally it's really interesting I mean it's all a lot of books that are that long, like I haven't read too many of them. Like, I mean, we were actually talking about George Eliot um, yeah. before and I have tried to finish Middlemarch so many times and have never finished it, um, but I've read a lot of her other books and I actually love a lot of her other books. Mm. Um, so I would think I would be able to get through, but I haven't been able to. And the only really, really long book that I've loved um, is Vanity Fair by um, William Makepeace Thackeray. And I love it because like all of those kinds of really long books that are about a cast of characters and kind of examining how different people inhabit different roles in the kind of social sphere, all that kind of thing, Vanity Fair is framed as very ironic and very, it's really interested in how characters perform their roles and and it's just I found it very funny and the main character of the that book Becky Sharp everyone is like she's the worst she's a social climber she sucks I mean she is manipulative and stuff but the whole point of the book is that this character that everyone points to as manipulative is the best person in the book because everyone else is lying about the fact that they're backstabbing assholes you know but she's just honest about it and so I found that a really satisfying framework for a really long book, you know? I just think with Anna Karenina, I think it's interesting to have, I mean, she's the kind of centerpiece of all these different characters moving around her, but maybe because the tone didn't get me, I don't know, I think it had to do with the tone. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that that it's unavoidable with an author of that, time a male yeah. author of that time in in, yeah. in his kind of social socialist yeah I um, honestly stamina let's say like I think yeah. that there's going to be an authorial voice that is kind of what we were saying before like an yeah. authorial voice you like or you hate and if you hate them like 100% and I think it's very similar here like as an authorial voice that's very imposing it doesn't disappear yeah totally and his writing feels very controlled. Like, I feel as if the writing, he, like all the sentences, I mean, of course, in these um, books too, it's very deliberate. But in his writing, I feel like he has a very kind of stronghold, you know, like, yeah. and also because Levin, at least in my reading, very much was a kind of character that represented his particular viewpoint. I felt as if there were like moments where I was trying, I was like, I'm reading an essay, but I'm also reading a novel. It was interesting. Like I found it interesting. In fact, the character I liked the most (laughs) was Anna Karenina's husband. (laughs) Really? I hated him. Oh, so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know. I liked him because I just found him one kind of hilarious, but then also I liked that he was one of the characters who was reckoning with the fact that she had opted out of these invisible rules everyone was supposed to follow. And I like when characters are like really reckoning with that. I don't know how we went into this Anna Karenina dance. Oh, I don't know. Sorry, guys. It, anyway, that's a good book if you have like 25 hours to read it. So, or three years or whatever to read it. Yeah. Um, so given that now we've you've heard this little digression that we've had let's get back to Elena Ferrante in a way what we've talked about is kind of related because we're talking about authorial voices we're talking about books we're talking about diverging opinions on literature and complicated <laughs> characters complicated authors um mm. so without further blah blah let's talk about <laughs> another passage that um and theme that Mikhail I wanted to discuss with you guys and let you guys make you guys aware of Yes. Um, well, for me, I mentioned this earlier. One of my favorite parts of this book is that I is that the book really goes into the all the possible meanings of the phrase "the absence of sense." I mean, in the word "absence" itself, I mean, the "ab" the part of that word means away from, you know, and separate from. And then the second part is "sense," you know, which is spelled differently, but "sense" means both kind of. Um, like a sense of rationality, intellect, knowledge, you know, and also it refers to the senses, you know, um, which is a lot of times um, posited in opposition to rationality. So what's really interesting about this phrase, absence of sense, is that it's saying both without intellect, it could potentially be saying without intellect or without rationality, but also without the senses. And also sometimes the, this is now I'm using the word sense many, many times, so I hope it's clear, <laughs> but also a lot of times people use the word sense as a way to indicate that they feel something in the air that they can't quite name, you know, like a sense of danger or a sense of, and so this phrase is really pregnant with meaning, I think, like it really has a lot to say. And I wanted to read a passage that just a short part of a paragraph, actually, but that kind of points to it that um, comes while Olga is locked in the apartment. And we'll talk a little bit about it. So, and oh, for those who um, are going to read this book or who are interested in looking at the text in English, it's on page 140. It's the first paragraph of chapter 31. So it goes, yes, I was stupid. The channels of my senses were blocked. How long had it been since life flowed in them? What a mistake it had been to close off the meaning of my existence in the rites that Mario offered with cautious conjugal rapture. What a mistake it had been to entrust the sense of myself to his gratifications, his enthusiasms, to the ever more productive course of his life. What a mistake, above all, it had been to believe that I couldn't live without him, when for a long time I had not been at all certain that I was alive with him. Where was his skin under my fingers, for example? Where was the heat of his mouth? If I were to interrogate myself deeply, and I had always avoided doing it, I would have to admit that my body in recent years had been truly receptive, truly welcoming, only on obscure occasions, pure chance. The pleasure of seeing, and seeing again, a casual acquaintance who had paid attention to me, had praised my intelligence, my talent, had touched my hand with admiration. So it goes on. But I wanted to read that because it brought up both um, the use of the word sense in terms of the senses and also 
the sense of myself, you know, this idea that she had of herself. And this word throughout the text comes up in surprising places too. It's not like suddenly she'll go monologue into all the meanings of sense, but it becomes this kind of rhythm that moves throughout the book. And um, I think by, for me anyway, by the time I finished reading the book, I felt as if this phrase was something I could also use in my own life. I talked earlier about this kind of the fact that literature sometimes can name experiences that we didn't have the language for before. And definitely after reading this book, I was like, oh, I can actually use this phrase to help me understand when I go through something that feels really fractured where both my intellect and my senses and these ideas I have about myself and the world are really unraveling and confused. Um, and it can help me also identify maybe how I can get out of those experiences. So. I just wanted to kind of highlight that because I really love that element of the book. That's amazing. Um, it's an excellent analysis of something that I hadn't thought about at all. So oh, cool. um, very, very cool. So we're now yeah. moving on to our last section of the podcast. And usually we would do very fun facts about the author. But in this case, we can't do that because we don't know anything about the author. So we're going to discuss like the... I, the different pseudonyms that have been, um, sorry, the different authors that have been thought to be an referente and the different connotations of that and the idea mm. of a pseudonym, etc. So why don't you kick this off, Michaela? So the thing about Elena Ferrante is that from the time she published her first book, which the first book that was published in English was The Days of Abandonment, like Ella said at the beginning, but, the, but it's not actually the first book of hers that was published. The first book um, was called Troubling Love and it came out in the 90s. Yeah, and from that time awful. when- Have she, you read that? I have read it. Oh I did God. not super enjoy it. I think it was my least favorite. <laughs> you look so angry. Like it's so, so violent. <laughs> I've never read anything as, as you say, visceral, like, oh God. Yeah. I was also really confused by what she was interested in exploring. Like, I felt like I kind of, from the beginning of the book, I was like, oh, this is the kind of guiding question. And then it didn't really seem to evolve from there. So I also found the experience of reading it kind of unsatisfying. Um, but anyway, so from the time she published that first book and she was very open about the fact that like, she did not want to be, um, she did not want to go on a press tour. She did not want to reveal who she was. She didn't want to do anything to, sell her books, that her job as the author is to write this text that then goes into the hands of readers and that the book is this exchange between a reader and a text. And she wanted that to be the sacred experience of reading, you know? And so from the beginning, she has really tried to avoid giving any details about who she may be. And yet people, I think, have become very interested in trying to find out who she is because she is so protective over herself, as if somehow a person isn't entitled to their privacy, you know, because I think there's this idea, or at least, at least there seems to be a perception that people who are artists want attention of some kind, you know, people go into the arts because they want to express something that maybe the world didn't give them room for and art is a way they channel that. I don't know. Everyone has different reasons for becoming an artist, but I think there's this perception that artists want to get attention from the things they make, you know? And so when an artist very clearly opts out of that paradigm, it confuses people. So people from the beginning, journalists, but also I think 
citizens in general, um, some people have been really curious. And there have been a few different times journalists have claimed to identify who this author is. And it's been posited as this woman who, whose name is Anita, I assume her last name is pronounced Raja, though I'm not sure. And she's a German to Italian translator, I believe. And she's married to the very successful Italian novelist, Domenico Starnone, who is very interesting also because um, I read a book of his recently, which I found really interesting, called in English called Trick. Anyway, he's really, he's from Naples as well. And a lot of his books are kind of concerned with Naples and class and some things that Ferrante is also interested in. So it's been posited that this German to Italian translator is actually Elena Ferrante. It's also been posited that Elena Ferrante is a collaboration between this married couple that actually they write it together. It's also been posited that Domenico Sarnone is writing all of them, but that's kind of the most pop or the most likely scenario, I guess, is that it's somehow from this married couple. But I think from my perspective, I'm of the camp that doesn't really care who Elena Ferrante is. I mean, I don't know, like, well, Ella, what do you think? Like, do you feel like, are you interested in knowing more about who she is? What is your response to all this? I would be so amazingly surprised if there were a man, a man writing this. Yeah. I think that it mm. posited this question in my mind when I first started thinking about this of like, mm. what does it do to read an author that you think is a female author? Yeah. And how do you read it um, when the voice is so clearly womanly? Um, yeah. what, how does it inst- like inform your reading? What kind of side effects do you have because you think it's a woman? And by side effects, I mean like, ideas that come to mind, associations, comforts, that kind of thing that you have as a reader. That if it's a man, then what does it do to feminist writing and female writing? Because in Italy, we have a very long tradition of um, Mm. female authors not wanting to be associated with feminism Mm. and with feminist writing. So like Mm. an author that you mentioned before is Natalia Ginsburg and Ginsburg Mm refused to be considered a feminist author because Mm. she didn't want to be associated with that she wanted to be considered an author and that's obviously within a very patriarchal society that is Italy that's very normal like very understandable that you wouldn't want to be associated with movement that like categorizes you when you're being Mm. categorized in every other aspect of your life so so I think it's a fascinating question and I Mm -hmm. I think it would be amazing. It, it poses a lot of questions when you read about reading and feminist reading and mm. um, female authors. And if it were a man, I, I think it, I would find that quite surprising because it would be less yeah. relatable. Yeah, I would honestly, and I feel like this word is really um, charged, but I feel it's appropriate. If I find out that this is really a man, I would feel betrayed, I think. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, like... Like, I mean, yes, I would be surprised, but I think more betrayed because if it is a man, then it's been masquerading so effectively as this very complicated kind of, like we've been saying, like this examination of gender in all these different ways and the main characters are women and it's about women's experiences and men are very tangential a lot of the time in all these books. You know, it they've been placing women as 
the kind of de facto protagonists of all these books, you know? And I think if a man came forward and was like, I've been writing this, I would be like, and fuck you, you know? I think it would cause a lot of, for me anyway, just like a lot of questions to come up because then also I'm not someone who's read these books and been like, I feel seen for the first time in my life. I know some people have, but I think especially for those folks, like if they're women who've read these books and felt seen for the first time in their life, and then they discover it's not a woman, I wonder, they may go through a process of an absence of sense, you know what I mean? Of being kind of overwhelmed by what this means. But yeah, I agree. I would be very surprised and I think betrayed because um, it, because I, I don't know, I think people have a very kind of personal visceral reaction to these books and it would, yeah, it would be a lot to take in for sure. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but just to talk about pseudonyms, because this is also something that I am particularly fascinated by. I really love the history of how pseudonyms have been used. And I just think it's so punk, weirdly, which is like a strange word to use in relation to it. But I just think it's so cool. Like pseudonyms are amazing. So just to go into it briefly, I mean, pseudonyms initially were used because people from certain places or certain identities couldn't be published in the literary market and pseudonyms became the way that people could get their work out there. So often in texts from even in school that you read where it said it was like anonymous, it was probably either written by a woman or someone who wasn't in the kind of scribe class of whatever place you're reading the work from. Anonymous sort of rather than its own name, it's sort of this label, you know, that works, that gets people into doors. And then there are a lot of writers who are women who've written in English, like the Brontes all had pseudonyms. They used pseudonyms as a way to try to get their work out there. So as opposed to sort of saying anonymous and not having any association with a kind of a personally constructed canon, it became this way to get things out there and connected to work. Then for me, I started getting interested in pseudonyms when I learned about George Eliot, who we brought up already, who I love personally. And for her, initially, her pseudonym, her real name also is Marianne Evans. And before she wrote as George Eliot, she was an editor and critic. And she used George Eliot as a way to, the pseudonym became a way to get certain messages out there that she couldn't get out there with just her name. So initially she used it as a way to get novels published in the marketplace because a lot of times the novels that were published by women at the time were all romances. And she kind of talks about this in a really famous essay of hers that I adore called Silly Novels by Lady Novelists, where she kind of goes through talking about all the different types of novels that are written by women and how for her using a male pseudonym became this way of distinguishing her books as not of the kind of women's genre that became, um, that started to establish itself at the time she was writing. The pseudonym became this way of trying to get her work published to distinguish herself from her work as a critic and essayist, or not essayist, a critic and editor. And so it became this very political gesture where also George was the name of the, married man she was sleeping with for a long time. And so it became her way of affiliating herself with this man who she wasn't gonna be affiliated with because she wasn't married to him. And and then also eventually once people found out that George Eliot was Marianne Evans, she actually continued to write with the pseudonym George Eliot to prove a point that like 
these names or the people who are let into these literary doors, it's just also arbitrary. So for her, the pseudonym became almost like a constant joke, you know, and um, a way to point out the fact that like to point both at how ridiculous it was that people use the fact that the only kinds of works published and written by women were these really silly romances as a way to continuously degrade women. She was saying, how fucked up basically is it that like we can continue to say women are stupid because the only women whose writing is published are writing these absurd stories. How stupid is that? And also how stupid is it that you can't even like interact with me and take me seriously because anytime a woman tries to publish under her own name and has any talent, she's looked down on. So it kind of became, continuing to publish under a pseudonym became this way of her asserting herself basically and trying to prove a point. Anyway, so then Elena Ferrante comes and her use of a pseudonym becomes um, a way to maintain her privacy, but also it's a way to make a point about the function of literature. And I think that's what's really, for me, moving about the fact that this author has continually tried to keep her life or their life, whoever she is, private, because I think something that has happened with the advent of the internet in particular is that people feel who people who consume art feel as if they should also have ownership over the identity of the artist and that the artist's body and person and identity is also transactional. And I think I don't know Elena Ferrante's complete opinion on this, but for me, I, I feel as if the kind of um, like very, I don't know, thoughtful and like concrete decision to separate herself from her work is really political, honestly. And saying something useful about the fact that we feel often as if we're entitled to know all this information about people and maybe we aren't, you know? And actually the experience of reading these books, I think for me, I feel personally about them partially because the writer wants me to feel personally engaged with them. You know, she like wants us to use these texts as a way to look at ourselves and the world differently. And also because the pseudonym is a feminine name, it's not necessarily making George Eliot's point that like, look at how absurd it is that you all know I'm a woman, but like, you can't seem to publish me unless I use a man's name, you know? She's not pointing to that element of the kind of strange gender dynamics that we live in in the 21st century. But what she is doing is saying that like, anyone can write, everyone should be able to write, but actually my gender, my identity, who I am should not have to play into anyone's experience with the art I make, you know? So that's kind of my, the strain of pseudonyms, but I just find it really cool. I think that's a very, very cool point. Um, something that I definitely hadn't thought about and didn't know very much about. Mm. So in closing, is there, we've kind of touched upon this, but the question that I tend to ask everyone mm. before we go is, is there any book that you've never finished that you would like to finish and come back to from time to time? Well, I mentioned this earlier, but I've never finished Middlemarch. Yeah. And I feel as if I should. I mean, but I also don't want to read something because I feel as if I should. So I think yeah. that's also what's prevented me from finishing the book. What about you? Do you have one that you haven't finished that you uh, think you need to? I can't finish any of Salman Rushdie's books. <laughs> I've really I've tried. I, 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 are they good? I don't know. I've never managed to finish them. 
<laughs> I, I can't tell you. It's, it's really my um my biggest flaw. Um, yeah. yeah. No, honestly, Michaela, thank you a million. This conversation has been a gem. So thank you. it's um, been so great talking with you about this. No, really. If you guys want to be more in Michaela's brain, please have a look mm. at her interviews. They are fascinating. Um, but that's it for, from us for now. Um, so talk to you soon. Bye. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you had a good time. If you'd like to hear more, note that we are on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about La Pichreta Barca, have a look at our website, lapichretabarca.com. L-A-P-I-C-C-I-O-L-E-T-T-A-B-A-R-C-A.com. And if you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon page. The intro music is from The Dreamers and the song is called Harbor Light. You can find their latest album, on Spotify and YouTube. Thanks again for listening.